Goma wena wange nagu Wenza umze mba wami kayala Wachokunga paka Deep inside of me Oh, Goma ndini Wandi patanga kuku Sose ndipinde ndivi ndwe nshinga lena Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa, Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet channel, 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa over 55 million US dollars pledged at an AU forum against Ebola and MSF report examines the fight against AIDS in 15 countries in economics news, South African cell phone companies told to slash data prices or face prosecution. And in sports news, South African Cricketers Association calls on CSA board to intervene in ongoing damage. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. South Africa's Defence and Military Veterans Minister Nosibuema Pisangakula has appointed a ministerial task team to investigate sexual exploitation and abuse by members of the National Defence Force. The task team is expected to provide a report early next year. This comes after a leaked report indicated that out of 41 reported cases, 26 were finalised with 13 convictions were secured of South African soldiers on peacekeeping missions outside the country. Mapisa Ngakula has expressed concern that some of the sentences may have been too lenient. She says she has trust in the National Defence Force, but this is a criminal matter and not a military one. Time the defense force opens itself up. Really, this is not a security matter which must be dealt with behind doors. It's just a matter of criminality, power, relations, abuse of uh, individuals. It's a human rights issue. So for me, it's about the SANDF must now open itself up to scrutiny in order to self-correct. An international aid group says armed men stormed its compound in South Sudan and assaulted several staffers. Relief International calls the attack in Maban town a senseless act of violence. Staffers have since relocated. It's not immediately clear who carried out the attack on Sunday. Rights groups have called on the government to investigate and hold people accountable. South Sudan is one of the world's most dangerous places for aid workers. More than 100 have been killed since the outbreak of civil war six years ago. 
The United Nations Climate Change Conference officially opened in Madrid, Spain on Monday with delegates discussing measures to implement the 2015 Paris Agreement. The major task of the conference is to discuss Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, the measures to promote voluntary international cooperation by paying a price on carbon emission trading schemes and other market mechanisms. The conference comes as global efforts to mitigate climate change are on the brink of failure. According to a UN Environment Programme report published last week on the emissions gap, countries have collectively failed to stop the growth in global greenhouse gas emissions meaning that deeper and faster cuts are now required. A memorial ceremony has taken place for 13 French soldiers killed in a helicopter collision in Mali during an operation against Islamist militants. President Emmanuel Macron and his Malian counterpart Ibrahim Boubacar Keita attended the ceremony in Paris. Members of the public were also allowed in. The soldiers were posthumously awarded the Legion of Honour, Thousands of French troops have been deployed in Mali since 2013 after militants overran parts of the north. A powerful typhoon has hit the largest island in the Philippines with guts of up to 240 kilometers per hour. Meteorologists say Typhoon Komori, the 20th typhoon to hit the country this year, has made landfall in Luzon Island. The BBC's Howard Johnson reports. Storm Kamuri, this typhoon hit last night around 11 o'clock on the eastern seaboard of the Philippines and now it's barreling across the country, heading its way towards this province, Batangas province, and also to the venues of the Southeast Asian Games. We've seen serious disruption to flights. We've also seen damaged buildings, uprooted trees. This is the 20th uh, typhoon to hit the country this year. And what they normally do is they get advised by the government to get their supplies in, maybe move towards emergency uh, centres. That's the New Zealand's at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. As the next phase of the impeachment inquiry into United States President Donald Trump gets underway this week, the White House says it won't participate despite an invitation to do so. On Wednesday, hearings will shift to the White House Judiciary Committee rather to the House Judiciary Committee after the House Intelligence Committee votes likely Tuesday night to approve its report on President Trump's potentially impeachable abuses of power in relation to his dealings with the President of Ukraine. The Judiciary Committee is responsible for drawing up any articles 
of impeachment that could be voted on by the full House before Christmas. Show and Bryce Peace reports. After weeks of testimony before the Intel Committee, where witness testimony included accusations that the President used the power of his office to withhold congressionally approved military aid and a White House meeting from Ukraine and its President, unless they publicly moved forward with an investigation against a political opponent of the President. While the Judiciary Committee offered President Trump and his attorneys an opportunity to participate this week, a five-page letter from White House counsel to the committee declined that invitation, arguing the hearings did not offer the presidents any semblance of a fair process, as expressed by Trump at a political rally in Florida last week. The radical left Democrats are trying to rip our nation apart. First, it was the Russia hoax, total hoax. It was a failed overthrow attempt and the biggest fraud in the history of our country. And then you look, the Mueller deal, you remember that mess? They had nothing. Two years, they spent $45 million, and the real cost is many times that number. And now the same maniacs are pushing the deranged impeachment. Think of this. Impeachment. Impeachment. A witch hunt. The same as before. And they're pushing that impeachment witch hunt. And a lot of bad things are happening to them. Because you see what's happening in the polls? Everybody said, that's really The White House decision comes as the Judiciary Committee shifts the focus of the impeachment inquiry from fact-finding to the consideration of possible charges against the President. Chairman of the committee, Gerald Nadler. The White House is advancing a new and dangerous theory, the crony privilege. It makes absolute immunity look good by comparison. Where are the limits? This is a cover-up, plain and simple. If it were to prevail especially while the Judiciary Committee is considering whether to recommend articles of impeachment, it would upend the separation of powers as envisioned by our founders. Currently, national polling averages reveal support for impeachment at around 49%, with those against at 43%. A divide on display in a congressional town hall in Staten Island, New York, where a Trump supporter was escorted out after yelling, Stop the coup! Max Rose is a Democratic congressman from that district. It is clear as day that this country is divided. I spend every day that I am not in Washington, D.C. speaking to you all. And believe me, I'm well aware that as a consequence of what is happening, half of this community hates what's going on, half of this community loves what's going on, and we're constantly at each other's throats. As partisan politics continues to be a driving force on the unfolding impeachment process, as expressed by these voters with opposing views. Bringing it into the public with all of the witnesses who testified, I think, brings a lot of valid evidence in. And now I want to see where everybody in the House, I want to see where they stand. I want to see where my congressman stands based off the evidence that we have heard from the people who 
have testified. That they have not come up with a thing. There's no evidence of any wrongdoing, no quid pro quo. I don't know what they're looking for. They'll never find it. So, two major things to look out for this week. First, the House Intelligence Committee's report summarizing their investigation. And secondly, the start of the Judiciary Committee process that will consider whether that report amounts to malfeasance on the part of the President and whether he should be impeached or not. A decision that could come as early as the next two weeks, with a full House vote likely before December 25th. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Meanwhile, negotiations on a trade deal between China and the United States appears to have stalled after President Donald Trump last week signed legislation backing protesters in Hong Kong, despite objections from Beijing. This comes amidst concerns raised by the United Nations Secretary General, both publicly and privately, of the growing risk of a great fracture in geopolitics, with the two economic and military giants engaged not only in a trade dispute, but also increased verbal after Washington upped its criticism of Beijing's human rights record. Tensions that continue to place observers on edge. Show and Bryce Peace reports. As relations between the two global giants appears to be heading even further south, U.S. President Donald Trump believes that while the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that he signed into law last week will not make trade negotiations with China any easier, he believes Beijing still wants a deal. The bill would impose economic sanctions on Chinese and Hong Kong officials responsible for human rights abuses in the territory. Trump was speaking ahead of his departure for the NATO summit in London this week. The Chinese are always negotiating. I'm very happy where we are and frankly uh, I could be other places that I could do all by myself and be even happier. I do understand what that means. But the Chinese want to make a deal. We'll see what happens. With positive bilateral ties between the two nations now giving way to distrust, even open hostility at times, in what some analysts have called the most daunting challenge since the two countries established diplomatic ties 40 years ago. This was Chinese President Xi Jinping at the recent BRICS summit in Brazil. Mounting protectionism and bullyism are eroding international trade and investment and weighing down the world economy. And I'm sure this is something you know too well from your direct participation in the global value chain. Add to this comments by the U.S. chief diplomat criticizing China's detention camps that hold an estimated one million minority Uyghur Muslims in what the United States has labeled the mass detention of individuals in violation of their human rights. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. These reports are consistent with an overwhelming and growing body of evidence that the Chinese Communist Party is committing human rights violations and abuses against individuals in mass detention. We call on the Chinese government to immediately release all those who are arbitrarily detained and to end its draconian policies that have terrorized its own citizens in Xinjiang. Prompting this response from Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Geng Shuang. The remarks from relevant people on the U.S. side are cliché and full of lies and political discrimination. 
It also made us aware of his malicious intentions to interfere with China's domestic affairs by using Xinjiang-related issues. I want to stress that there aren't ethnic, religious, human rights issues. The measures that the Xinjiang government takes are about counterterrorism and de-radicalization. With the world watching, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres also recently weighed in. I fear the possibility of a great fracture, the world splitting in two, with the two largest economies on hers, creating two separate and competing worlds, which, with their own dominant currency, trade and financial rules, their own internet and artificial intelligence capacities, and their own zero-sum geopolitical and military strategies. We must do everything possible to avert the great factor, fracture and maintain a universal system, a universal economy with universal respect for international law, a multipolar world with strong multilateral institutions. All this at a time when Moscow and Beijing edge closer together after Monday's launch of a $55 billion gas pipeline between the two countries, while tensions with the United States continue to simmer. And while the first phase of a trade deal was expected to be concluded in November, that now seems increasingly tenuous, given the war of words between the two rivals that have ruffled Beijing on the question of its sovereignty. I'm Sherman Ricepies in New York. Services remained paralyzed on Monday in the DRC's North Kivu province and in several Catholic schools in South Kivu province. This after a strike called by civil society groups to demand the UN mission to leave the country. Some people are accusing the MINUSCO of failing to protect civilians and supporting the National Army. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The North Kivu civil society believes the population in Beni is abandoned as more than a hundred civilians have been killed in one month by the Allied Democratic Forces ADF since the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo launched a military operation against those Ugandan rebels. It has become an everyday killing of inhabitants in Beni, and that's why people are mourning for three days, according to this civil society member, Esperance Kazi. We are not working today, tomorrow night, now on one day. That means we are really in mourning. This is the situation that is nowadays. Today, tomorrow, and now on Wednesday, no activity. Everyone stay home. Uh, since the operation has started, more than a hundred of people have been killed uh, in the town and uh, far from the town. That means Broad Beni Owicha, at Mantumbi, at uh, Owicha, near Owicha. More than a hundred. I can't uh, estimate the number. It is more than a hundred. Every day they are killing more than uh, 20 people the same day. Even uh, yesterday they killed uh, 15. Uh, 15 people died at Mantumbi yesterday. People are pointing fingers on the UN mission here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Monusco that they accuse of not protecting civilians and not fully supporting the National Army. The Catholic Church in the South Kivu province and other areas of the east has expressed support to the victims of massacre in Beni and decided no school activity this Monday. Reverend Jean-Marie Kitumaini is in charge of communication in the Bukavu Archidiocese. 
Here we have MONUSCO with specific mission, but there is really slow action or lack of precision in the action to be taken. People are really determined to get MONUSCO out as they believe 20 years of the mission presence here in the DRC is enough for the country to be in peace. This many civil society member, Esperance Kazi, has told Channel Africa demonstrations will continue until the UN mission can leave the DRC. We will not stop. All people in Beni, the demonstrations will continue until they will go. This is our decision as youth, as people in Beni. We will continue demonstrating. And even now, there are people who are demonstrating. And uh, because uh, I'm at home uh, this time, we have a meeting with uh, some youth. And uh, we are going to see how to continue with demonstrations so that Monisco can leave our country if uh, it can be for a while before really we plan for other things. We want them to leave first. I don't know why they are refusing to leave. It is us who are being killed. Why are they refusing to leave? Then I ask we will continue with demonstrations until they will go. This is our decision. It's indeed the same determination observed in the North Kivu capital city, Goma, where inhabitants didn't work normally this Monday as well. According to this activist from the Fight for Change civil movement well known as Lucha Jackson Zahera, the strike against the MONUSCO is going on up to this Tuesday. This Monday, no activity in Goma. Today and tomorrow, they are asked to MONUSCO car not run in the town. The power is for people. People is determined. We continue demonstration. Then Monisco can leave our country. Angry protesters destroyed Monisco's properties in Goma, Beni, and Butembo last week. The deputy UN Secretary General Jean-Pierre Lacroix has called on investigations for those who attacked the properties to be persecuted. But according to these civil society members, Esperance Kazi and Jackson Zahera, Human lives are more important than properties, and Mr. Lacroix's statement is not so good. Saying that is not good. The Monisco military is not security people. That's why people say to Monisco to leave our country. They are saying material, but not human beings. When us as human beings are dying, they don't make investigation, but for material. For them, materials is expensive than uh, human beings. It's indeed more than five years since Ugandan rebels of allied democratic forces are operating in Beni, killing people in that eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Members of the private sector in Africa and international partners have pledged to assist the Democratic Republic of Congo combat the Ebola virus. In an event organized by the African Union Commission in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, they have pledged over $55 million and other assistance in kind. The event was dubbed Africa Against Ebola Forum. Coletta Wanjohi reports. The African Union Commission Chairperson Musa Faki Mohamed says it is important that the Democratic Republic of Congo is assisted to fight what has now been termed as the most complicated Ebola attack in the country since 1976. He has asked for support from private sector and the international partners. 
This Africa Against Ebola Forum here today is therefore part of our ongoing efforts to support DRC with the aim of mobilizing at least 50 million US dollars. The resource mobilization will serve, among others, to support experts and the equipment deployed in the affected areas, support the establishment of a center of excellence for Ebola control in the DRC, enhance the resilience of affected communities, build the capacity of preparedness and the response as the border points of the nine countries bordering with the DRC. The 10th Ebola crisis has persisted since August 2018. So far, according to the World Health Organization, over 2,000 people have lost their lives. The Minister of Health from the DRC, Eteni Longodo, says the situation is now under control, but measures must be put to make DRC ready for any eventuality. The DRC has set the pace by giving its pledge. The evolution of the epidemic on the ground shows that we have now moved from emergency to gradual stabilization. So we need to anticipate in order to prepare better the development stage, which will require additional resources to reinforce the health system. That's why, and to start, I solemnly announce from this rostrum uh, the donation of one million U.S. dollars by the Democratic Republic of Congo. In total, 55 million dollars was pledged, with the European Union being the highest giver. Other countries pledged to give medical supplies, vaccines, as well as assistance to train health practitioners in the DRC. Jinjex Muyembe, who is credited globally for discovering Ebola and its treatment, says the DRC is on track to end the challenge. The good news here is, is that Ebola is now curable by specific treatment and would soon be a preventable disease by specific vaccination. If our countries prepare themselves and strengthen their health systems, outbreaks of EVD will be detected in time, the response will be quick, and the epidemic will be stifled in the bud, as it was the case in Goma and Mwenga. As a way forward, EVD in North Kivu and in Ituri is not yet, has not yet ended. The threats of expansion in uh, neighboring countries is still there. This is the second such continental donor conference held in the fight against Ebola. The first was in 2014 when the Africa Against Ebola Solidarity Trust Fund was created to end the Ebola virus in West Africa that had claimed about 11,000 lives. I'm Kuletan Johi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
South Africa's economic and jobs crisis came under the spotlight at the meeting between the ruling ANC and its alliance partners, Trade Union Federation Kasatu and the SACP at Lutuli House in Johannesburg on Monday. The Crucial Alliance Political Council meeting will receive a report on a unified economic strategy for the country. This follows an instruction by the council earlier this month that alliance partners come up with a holistic approach to the economy. Debo has more. Although South Africa avoided a recession as the economy grew up by just over 3% in the last quarter, the conventional view is that this growth is not good enough. This is compounded by the latest data from State's essay on unemployment, which is now standing at almost 30%. Another factor that frustrates the country's economic prospects is the mismanagement at key state-owned enterprises. And all these are a worrying factor to the governing ANC and its alliance partners. They've called a meeting at Lutuli House to discuss this and other alliance politics. Pule Mabi is the ANC spokesperson. This APC is a follow-up to one that was held in quite recently, now in November. So we can only expect that it will uh, deal with all the outstanding issues and uh, come up with a firm plan on what needs to be done to deal with issues of a contracting economy, address issues in the public service, and make sure that uh, we strengthen the alliance. At the last alliance political council, both the ANC, COSATU and the SACP resolved to set up a nine-member alliance economic working group tasked to look at a number of interventions to get the economy back on track. SACP First Deputy General Secretary Solima Paila. That alliance economic working group will be giving us a feedback today. So we'll look into that, uh, to look into various interventions necessary that government should urgently intervene on to assist our economy because, as you know, we have serious challenges, the state of state-owned entities and how they are responding to the economic challenges in the country. So it's all of those things that are, have been pulled together to try and say what can be the role of government in this regard. You have noticed the president has led a campaign for investment into South Africa through investment summits, job summits. So it's a consolidation of all of these interventions. And as Alliance partners go into this meeting, the elephant in the room is government's intention to privatize some state-owned enterprises by getting equity partners for the South African airways, among others. But Mapaila says they will oppose any intention to privatize the national carrier. Such attempts to try and force us to accept any form of uh, privatization model is completely unacceptable. We want such kind of institutions to be saved. As an example, for instance, we have allowed every other airline, including international airline, to travel up and up and about South African airspace, whilst we've got our own SAA. And now we say it's not profitable. That's absolute nonsense. We have to find a mechanism, including enforcing that all government institutions, state-owned enterprises must fly SAA. And we must support SAA instead of simply saying it's incapable to make profit, let's privatize it. We will never entertain any approach to privatization. He says it is said that there is no political will to save the alien state-owned enterprises, insisting that there is now a new grouping in government which is targeting these SOEs. There's no political will. I think uh, what is worrying is an element of a new grouping of those who want also to abuse uh, state-owned enterprises for their own selfish interest. And that will be met with uh, absolute rejection by the Communist Party. We'll mobilize against it. There's no doubt about it. We won't accept it. The outcomes of the Alliance Political Council will be communicated through a statement on Tuesday. I am Debu Mugobo in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent 
and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, South Africa's Defence and Military Veterans Minister Nosibuema Pisa Ngakula has appointed a ministerial task team to investigate sexual exploitation and abuse by members of the National Defence Force. An international aid group says armed men stormed its compound in South Sudan and assaulted several staffers. And the United Nations Climate Change Conference officially opened in Spain on Monday with delegates discussing measures to implement the 2015 Paris Agreement. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution has called on President Sil Ramaphosa to censure Transport Minister Figuil Mbalula. This follows remarks by Mbalula last week where he called Western Cape Judge President John Chlope a Mickey Mouse. Judge Chlope had ruled that the Passenger Rail Agency of South Africa should not cancel a security contract until a new tender is finalized or that they should put alternative measures in place. Joseph Musia has more. Mbalula is reported to have asked if Judge Chlope knew how to run trains. He is said to have added that the judge president must ask himself that particular question before he makes himself a Mickey Mouse and turns the courts into something that must not be respected. Kasek Executive Secretary Lawson Naidu says Mbalula's statement undermines the independence of the judiciary and the president needs to act. The president needs to step in and uh, has a responsibility to ensure the integrity of the judiciary and should publicly reprimand the minister for these, uh, for these scurrilous remarks. Political parties have also voiced their disquiet about the minister's remarks. Chris Hunsinger of the DA issued a statement condemning Mbalula's conduct. He's also written directly to the minister, asking him to apologize and withdraw the remarks. Should he not do this, then I will approach President uh, Ramaphosa uh, to then react to him. Since someone in an executive position as Minister Mfakile Mbalula, he should not uh, conduct such unprofessional and unasked for statements because it's an insult. Uh, to the person and also to the judiciary as such. ACDP Chief Whip Steve Swart also said should Mbalula fail to withdraw his remarks and apologize, the president should take steps. We appreciate that his frustration with the continued um, burning of trains, but his anger should rather be directed to catch the criminals responsible for the burning of these trains. And in our view, his comments amount to a disrespect of the judiciary and it can not go unchallenged because we know the independence of our judiciary is very important. That report by Joseph Musia in South Africa's Parliament, Cape Town. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has asked Parliament to approve 22.72 billion US dollars of foreign borrowings tied to infrastructure and other projects after a similar request three years ago was rejected. The government has said it wanted to borrow more from abroad so that 40% of its loans come from offshore sources by 2019 to lower cost and help fund its record budgets. Collins Atohengbe reports. In the last assembly, President Buhari submitted a request for approval to take additional 
loan offshore to meet the infrastructure development especially in energy and roads construction and development the request was turned down on technical grounds and the buhari administration has resubmitted the request for a loan on the grounds of infrastructure development to the national assembly to consider this has caused a serious debate amongst economists who are not impressed by the reasons from government officials in the budget office. Obadiah Malafia, who was a former governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, says. For me, the principle is not whether or not government can borrow. The issue is what are you borrowing it for? And it is not enough to make a blanket statement like for infrastructures. No. I would want to see borrowing for specific project-based, project-linked funds, that their preparation of project has been done to an advanced level. We know what is going to come out of that project, and we have done the proper funding analysis. Don't forget, the first loan we took in 2015 was a 1.3 billion IDA loan for the Northeast. I've been to the Northeast a couple of times. There is nothing there to show for it. Therefore, I find the whole proposition very unsettling, dangerous, and unpatriotic. The reason Dr. Mailafia seems to be very apprehensive about the borrowing culture is the ratio of debt servicing, which he says leaves much to be desired because of the absence of evidence of what past borrowing has been used for. According to him, let's account for yesterday's loans first. Let's look at the, the facts on ground. You are using five naira out of every ten naira that you have to service your debt. And the IMF are telling you, that, oh no, they are clapping for you, you are fine, because you are, you are, your GDP to debt ratio is one of the lowest in West Africa. Who are you competing with in West Africa? You should be competing with Brazil, uh, Indonesia, and the rest. This, those are our real comparators. And we, we, we don't have a debt crisis. Yes, I'm not, I wouldn't use the word crisis. But we have a debt problem. I'm not saying they shouldn't borrow. But let's have all the records and analytics of what has been done with all the money borrowed. I mean, $80 billion? What a joke. Policymakers depend on the analysis from trusted advisors. The budget office says there is reason to borrow and that is dependent on available statistics. Here is the view of the Director General of the Budget Office, Ben Akabweze, on further borrowing. Well, essentially... The Fiscal Responsibility Act says that we should borrow essentially for capital expenditure unless, I mean, there are exceptions in circumstances where you can do otherwise. And if we're planning to borrow 1.6 trillion naira, it stands to reason that all of that is um, targeted at um, a capital component of the budget. This is the aggregate ceiling for borrowing. These are tied to specific projects. Babatunde Badamosi, a development expert, says the budget office is wrong because its analysis of the situation is not real and because Nigeria could be in trouble soon. As it stands now, when you look at our GDP as of 2014, it was 568 billion US dollars. And at that time, we had less than 20 billion dollars outstanding in foreign debt. So I think it's time to press the stop button. We're dangerously close to getting into trouble. The president should stop this command and control system that he has been running unsuccessfully since 2015. I see uh, in the debt management office figures where they are. The, and today they are saying the official rate is 306 naira to a dollar. But that's not true because nobody actually gets to buy naira dollars at 306. The border closure has caused runaway inflation. 
A process of borrowing is not wanting within the circles of government supporters who feel all steps taken by their heroes are right despite warnings from naysayers. Daniel Boalia is a lawyer and a member of the ruling All Progressive Congress Party. He throws his weight behind the plans to borrow. I am in support of the borrowing because if you have infrastructure def deficit, if you have a problem of managing between that ratio, uh, the, the revenue ratio and the borrowing, then you have a problem. There is no problem with the borrowing. In fact, there was, and I don't think any economists will argue the fact that as a country, if we have to fix the infrastructure, we need to borrow. But this time around, the specifics are going to be delivered. If we have that one, we don't have a problem. Well, in his view, Badamosi says Nigeria is already in deep trouble. The reality is that Nigeria is sinking very fast under amateur economic managers. The people that are running the economy right now are rank amateurs. They have no clue. The damage has already been done. We already are in very, very serious trouble. Our, our debt profile is already more than 25%. If they, if they take this loan, it will tip it over 25% to our last GDP, given the record of this. Open up the economy. Open the land borders. Allow trade. Remove forex restrictions. Stop trying to micromanage the, the foreign exchange rates. Stop it. And finally, remove fuel subsidy. Because... Right now, for some strange reason, our fuel subsidy uh, figures has gone up to more than double what it was when the Buhari administration came in. Nigeria's external debt, which was $22.38 billion 12 months ago, has risen to 24.59 already. And with a plan to take the new loans, it will tip over to $25.7 billion level. And that will not be funny to live with because already about half of its revenue is tilted towards debt services. But is that dependable and sustainable? Read my lips. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nusato Ingwe for Channel Africa News. Three women were selected as finalists for the 2020 Martin Ennals Award for Human Rights Defenders. The award will be re presented to one of them on the 19th of February during a ceremony that will be hosted by the city of Geneva in Switzerland. The three finalists are Huda al-Sarahi from Yemen, Norman Norma Ledesma from Mexico and Cezanne Ngubani from South Africa. For more on this, Lebuhang Mabanga spoke to Isabel de Sola, director of Martin Ennals Awards. The Martin Ennals Award is a prize that goes every year to an exceptional and outstanding human rights defender. It's been given for the past 26 years, and it goes to people who have been above and beyond in their commitment, dedication, and also their impact for human rights. The prize itself consists of 50,000 Swiss francs and also a, a trip to Geneva and an experience of participating in an award ceremony here in Geneva, which is the capital of human rights worldwide. Now, what do you aim to achieve with this award? The aim of the award is to increase visibility of the person that it's given to so that we can contribute to protecting them, legitimizing their work, and humanizing them. We hope that by giving this award each year, we put in the spotlight um, how important it is to defend human rights and how brave and committed are the people that do this on the front lines. The three exceptional women are the finalists for the 2020 Martin Enels Awards. How did it get to three? Take us through the process of selecting the finalists. 
Exactly. Well, about uh, seven years ago, um, the award moved from nominating just one person for the prize to nominating three people. One would eventually become the laureate of the award, and there would be two runners-up or finalists. And the reason for that is that um, we wanted to... Every year, there are so many people around the world that put their lives on the line for human rights. It seemed a shame only to focus on one person. By nominating three from the beginning, we can put that spotlight and give the visibility and the legitimacy to three brave persons around the world. Now tell us more about the three finalists and what they do and what made them stand out. Absolutely. So we have three women finalists this year for the very first time in the history of the award, but it was a complete coincidence. Um, We received over 50 nominations from around the world to the award, and it just so happened that three exceptional women stood out amongst the pool. We have first um, Suzani Nagubane, a fellow South African woman who has dedicated her adult life, essentially, to promoting the rights of rural women in South Africa. Suzani has worked on many angles related to rural women's rights, um, from their right to choose their husbands and decide on their sexual lives, from their right to represent themselves in court or to own property. Over 50 years of career, she has raised uh, the profile of rural women, sometimes of women who are indigenous in South Africa as well. So not all rural women identify with different tribes of South Africa. She has worked on behalf of both. And in the recent years, Suzani has been dedicated to raising awareness about the practices of the Igonyama Trust in KwaZulu-Natal and how the management of land by the trust is um, potentially depriving uh, indigenous persons of their full benefit and their right to the land. Our second finalist this year is Norma Librada Ledesma in Chihuahua, Mexico. Chihuahua is a border state with the United United States of America, and Norma has lived there her whole life. She lost a daughter, a daughter named Paloma, who was just a teenager at the time, to uh, organized crime and violence against women. In That's Isabel de Sola, director for Martin Ennels Awards, on the line speaking to Lebuhang Mabange. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. Zambia says it is confident that gold mining in Mwinilunga and other potential sites across the country will make a huge contribution to the country's economy. This after the UK-based company Jubilee Metals has said there was real potential for the mining sector in Zambia, especially gold and that investors in the United Kingdom needed to know about Zambia's gold. The Ministry of Mining met UK companies including Jubilee Metal Group, Spark Advisory Partners, Shard Capital, Spice and Capital GCAM Investment, who expressed interest in investing in Zambia.
South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister, Ibrahim Patel, says government is prepared to do what is necessary to help ensure the reduction of data prices in the country. The Competition Commission released its data services market inquiry findings, including that data prices in South Africa are excessive and anti-poor. The Commission has given communication companies of Vodacom and MTN two months to reduce prices by 30 to 50% or face prosecution. But Dell was speaking at the release of the inquiry report in the capital, Pretoria. And so for all these reasons, reasons of growth, inclusion, development and democracy, it matters what happens to prices. And so the findings and the recommendations of the Competition Commission will be carefully studied uh, by ourselves. Uh, it will be reflected on, and we will certainly back the actions that are necessary to help bring data prices down. The U.S. government says it's considering slapping punitive duties of up to 100% on $2.4 billion worth of imports from France. Products including champagne, handbags and cheese could be on the list after U.S. concluded that France's new digital services tax would harm American tech companies. The BBC's Vivian Nunes reports. France's planned digital services tax, under which Google, Apple, Facebook and Amazon will pay a 3% levy on revenue earned in France from digital services such as online advertising. The US Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer says France's planned tax discriminates against American digital companies. He also said similar digital taxes in Austria, Italy and Turkey are being investigated. South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province's tourism sector is starting a concerted drive to lure Chinese tourists to the province with, among other things, the promise of an authentic experience of Amazulu culture. South Africa tourism's Mansu Mohammed says that there is a growing number of Chinese nationals who are interested in visiting South Africa. He was speaking at the China Ready Trade Engagement Conference in Durban. The conference is aimed at helping tour operators to put together packages attractive to tourists from China. Stets SA says more than 9,000 Chinese nationals visited South Africa last year, of which only 45 passed through KwaZulu-Natal province. Mohammed says KwaZulu-Natal province should showcase its own attractions. We need to change our mindsets. All of us, we are complementing each other. So maybe Cape Town has got the advantage of having a beautiful mountain and it's got a beautiful ocean and it's got diverse people and it looks very Eurocentric on the surface. But let me assure you, it's only because people have been marketing that for a very long time. The Kruger is there to provide you a lot of wildlife experiences, but people go to Pilanesburg and in KZN, there's lots of game farming opportunities. It's just that people don't know about it. So the one thing that's missing from the entire equation is the secrets that KZN has. The US dollar is trading at 360.41 Nigerian Nara, 
1071 Botswana Pula 101.53 Kenyan shilling and 1461 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 422 Brazilian roll, 6425 Russian ruble, 71.51 Indian rupee, 73 Chinese yuan and uh, 1461 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold $1,461, platinum $897 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $61.15 a barrel. It's Channel Africa. Up next with Figuli Limati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with the football news. Managing to defend the Kosafa under-20 trophy in Dusanka, Zambia in the next two weeks could go a long way towards securing former Bafana Bafana international Herman Mkalele's Midland Express a permanent contract as Amajita head coach. Mkalele, who has been working for the past two and a half years as former Amajita head coach Tabosinong, will leave today with the newly assembled South African under-20 national team as they aim to defend a tournament they've dominated for the past two years. He's going to Zambia without a mandate from SAFA, but knows very well what would be the expectation. The mandate from SAFA, even though it was not really specified in relation to me defending the, 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 the trophy, but it's always a, a, a foregone conclusion that I have to de- I have to defend uh, the trophy so that is a, a mandate on its own but uh, at this point in time since we know that we are not playing for the qualifiers for the African Cup of Nations as well as the qualifiers for the World Cup so uh, this is our first phase of uh, of preparing the team uh, towards uh, 2020 Kosafa uh, uh, game where uh, games that we will use uh, for the preparations in for the qualifiers in 2021 so this i would say yes i do i didn't get a, a specific mandate but i know for being in the in the setup for quite some time now knowing that you know when you are expected to lead the team uh, you are expected to make sure that you get the results Amajita have been drawn in Group B at the competition in Zambia and opened the campaign against Mauritius on Thursday for the tournament which will finish on the 14th of this month. Mkhalede knows the pressure that comes with being the defending champions. Such tournaments, they are always challenging because any team that comes against um, our team, they will always want to make sure that uh, they get the results if not playing better than us. And also... uh, uh, being the champions, so everyone gets motivated. So we'll, we 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 are expected to make sure that uh, we live up to the expectations or live up to uh, the demands, the challenges that will be posed by the teams. 
and more especially when I look at the feature um, in the previous editions, then we played against Mauritius, you know, and, and, and in our last edition, you know, we beat them 5-0. Uh, uh, um, but what I also observe is that um, as the tournament grew, they became stronger. And uh, uh, with that, you know, uh, I can say, or I can simply say, and they would be more motivated. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to lose against us. So. Argentine Lionel Messi beat Virgil van Dijk to the Ballon d'Or to win football's most prestigious individual prize for a record sixth time. Megan Dapeno won the Women's Award. Alison Becker won the Best Goalkeeper's Yashin Award. And Matisse Delight won the Best Young Player Copa Award. And in the cricket news, the South Africa's Mzanzi Super League enters the home stretch of the first phase of the regular season with five of the six teams vying for the top three positions that are set to be decided in the next seven days. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Donors pledge over 55 million US dollars to tackle Ebola in the DRC and impeachment inquiry into US President Donald Trump set to continue. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzala Magaza, technical producer Wiseman Mangwele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Masejo with a song titled African Lady. Won't you be my lady? I'm gonna call you ca ca call you lady 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 lady